All right, Romans chapter 4, verse 16. Uh, That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. This is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, This morning I want to begin at the end of the passage, the last couple verses there, because in the end of that passage, the Word of God makes three incredible claims, and I can guarantee you that these claims are the best news that you will ever hear. Here are the claims. Number one, that Jesus died for our sins and that he was raised for our justification. Claim two, that if we place our faith in him, we will be justified by faith just as Abraham was justified by faith. And thirdly, that only through justification by faith can any of us have peace with God. Now this morning I assume that all of you are peace-loving people. Uh, But you may be surprised when I say that you do not inherently possess peace with God. But rather, if left to your own devices, you could never have peace with God. You are in conflict with your creator. And I admit that that is not a very popular position to hold nowadays. But if it is true, then its popularity is irrelevant. So with that in mind, I hope to answer a few questions this morning. What is that big word, justification? Why aren't we at peace with God? Why should we want peace with God? And how can one become justified? To answer these questions, we will need to consider the storyline of the Bible itself. And I'm going to give you a fair warning. I hope you ate your potassium this morning, or else your hand is going to cramp up, because we're going to be flipping through a lot of pages, or... um, tapping and on a lot of screens. Let's pray and we will dive in. Our Heavenly Father, we do praise you as the creator of all things. Lord, we're so excited that we get to celebrate 
the death, but more importantly, the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, this morning. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would empower the preaching of your word with your Holy Spirit, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. God, help me to preach your truth according to your power, and let us celebrate your grace together. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's take a look. Uh, as I said, we're going to consider the storyline of the Bible. Let's take a look at the very beginning in Genesis. Let's consider two verses here. First, it says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And if we move on to verse 26, there's uh, a little bit of description in between the two. But it says this. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Well, in order to understand why it is that we lack peace, we have to understand creation. Namely this, that God created everything from nothing. And that God created humanity. And even this morning, if you would not consider yourself a Christian, this is probably, statistically speaking, a truth that you hold. Uh, intuitively, you know that your life has meaning. You know that your decisions really do matter, that it's better to pursue good than evil, that it's better to help others than be selfish. And you know the, the love which you have experienced in life is real, and it can't simply be reduced to biochemical reactions in your brain. In other words, you know that you were not self-created. You know that you were not a cosmic accident. You were created by a good God who loves you. And you're reminded of your creator every time you watch the sunset over the ocean or stare up into the stars at night. And if you were not created by God, then you have no real basis for the things that you intuitively recognize to be true. So, we recognize that God created us. Secondly, in Genesis 1, uh, in verse 27, we see that he created us in his image. This might seem a little bit random to you, but do we have any Taylor Swift fans? You can raise your hand. I won't judge you. Okay, there's like three of you willing to admit it. I'm just going to quote her song lyrics for the rest of the sermon. No. <laughs> Did you see that she's re-recording her first five albums? Do you know why? Because she wants more money. No. <laughs> because she doesn't own any of that music. The studio does. And she believes that creators should have authority over their creation. Uh, if a record label is going to profit off her image, likeness, and voice, she wants to determine how that product of hers is used. 
She designs it. She wants to determine its purpose, set the rules for its distribution. She believes that a creator should have rights over, should have authority over, should own her creation. And in this, she's simply reflecting a biblical truth. It says here that God created mankind in his own image. Uh, This means that as created beings, you are not independent as much as we like to think we are. We are God's creation. Now, this image language is there to show us that we were created to a purpose, to reflect his goodness. That as we work, as we create, as we live, we bring him glory. And it means that God has a design and a purpose for us. And we reflect him as his images when we live according to that design and according to that purpose. We flourish as humans when we live in the way that God intended for us. And so goodness here can be understood as living according to design. Recognizing that he is our creator and we are the creation. And so it was with our first ancestors. They were given an entire garden of yes in which they could reflect their God and his goodness and enjoy his presence. And they were given a single prohibition, which if they chose to violate, God promised devastation. And so God came to them and he said, live according to my design, live according to my purpose, enjoy this wonderful creation that I've provided for you. You can enjoy peace, love, and perfect happiness indefinitely. Most of all, you can enjoy my presence, which is your greatest good, to know God and to love him. But Adam and Eve ultimately decided that they didn't trust God. They questioned his goodness. They rejected his design. They said, I don't care how God defines me. I want to define myself. They said, I don't care how God defines goodness. I want to define goodness for myself. And they rejected God's design, and so they rejected God. They believed a lie, and they learned to love something other than God more than God. Well, brothers and sisters, this is what the Bible calls sin. It's rejecting God's design, believing that we know better than God. It's loving anything other than our creator more than our creator. Well, the Bible is also clear that there are consequences to sin. That sin leads to death. When sin entered the world, it brought with it death and destruction, disease and natural disaster. With sin, creation lost its original harmony. Humanity lost our peace, not only with one another, but more importantly, we lost our peace with God. And we became rebellious enemies of his. Because of our sin, we now exist by nature under God's judgment. And if we stay that way, the terrible truth of scripture is that we will remain under his wrath his just wrath 
for eternity. God does not let sin go unpunished because he is a just God. But he's also a loving God. He's also a merciful God. And we see the love of God demonstrated for creatures who rejected him. If we continue through the storyline of scripture, we encounter a God who is determined to show grace and to rescue rebellious sinners from their folly. And a God who's working to destroy evil once and for all. And so we turn to Abraham. A few chapters later, we meet a man named Abraham. And Abraham is living after the fall. He's living in a fallen world. And like us, Abraham is himself a sinner. He was not at peace with God. Uh, But pay attention to the way that God interacts with Abraham because it's going to give us a category to understand how exactly it is that God rescues sinners. Even though we rejected his purpose and design, even though we chose to love something other than God, God in Genesis 15 comes to rescue Abraham. So consider in these verses God's interaction in three things. Uh, These three questions. Who takes the initiative? Who makes the promises? And who does the saving? Let's read these verses together. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. All right, I'll be that old guy. This is why you keep a paper Bible. And he brought him outside and he said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And pay attention to this verse. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So recall those three questions. The answer to all of those three questions is God. And this is what we mean when we say that God is gracious. It means that God's saving work is entirely his work. He makes the promises. He takes the initiative. He does the saving. I mean, right off the bat, he comes to Abram and he says, Abram, fear not, I am your shield and your very great reward. Uh, Abram didn't seek out God. God sought out Abram. And God came and made a promise to Abram, an old man at this point and still childless. And he says, Abram, look up at the stars at night. Go ahead, and, go ahead and try to number all the stars that you see there. And he says, so shall your offspring be. Abraham, you are going to be a father of a multitude. But just think about how wild this is for a second. Okay, remember, there's no Bible at this point. Like, this is... Genesis as it's happening. Uh, 
Abram didn't grow up in church. He's a pagan. And beyond this, Abram is at this point probably in his 80s. His wife is 10 years behind. And the creator of the universe comes to Abram and he reveals himself and he promises him children. <laughs> but Abraham believes the promises of God. He believes God and this faith that we see in 15 verse 6 is what Paul quoted in Romans chapter 4. He believes, and the text says, Abram's faith is counted to him as righteousness. This word righteousness is uh, not a word that is in your everyday lexicon. Uh, you don't hear it very often except when it's used to describe you know, hypocritical people who are self-righteous. Uh, but it's a forensic term. It's a, a legal term. You see, not only is God our creator, but he's also our judge. And sin has made every single one of us guilty before him. Without his grace, we will one day be sentenced for that guilt. So in our sin, we're not just fallible people. We're not just people who make mistakes. We are guilty before the creator of the universe. And we are under his judgment. And this is where righteousness comes in. It's a wonderful thing. Righteousness is a right standing before God. It's not simply innocence. It's better than that. It's actually positively goodness. It's not simply a lack of sin and guilt, but a fullness of moral accomplishment as if you had lived perfectly according to God's design. So right here in Genesis 15, this is what's so radical about that statement. God is declaring that Abraham is righteous because of nothing else but that he believed. That Abraham had met all of God's requirements for right living. And notice here that it doesn't say that Abraham was a really good guy. It doesn't say that Abraham worked really, really hard for God to accept him or to attain righteousness. But it said that God counted it to Abraham or that God credited it. Or if you like the old KJV, God reckoned it. Only us Southerners use that reckon word anymore. That's what justification means. And so Abraham had peace with God because he had a right standing with God and because of God's grace alone. Now, perhaps you're here this morning. Uh, if you are willing to recognize that all of us in the human family are sinners, then this raises a very important question. How is it that God can be both just and let people off the hook? How can he forgive sinners? How can he make sinners righteous and still be just? Isn't that like a, a judge declaring a convicted bank robber or a convicted murderer to be innocent? Wouldn't that make God unjust? Uh, well, the short answer, of course, is no. But to explain why, we need to continue moving through the storyline of Scripture and see how God's incredible plan unfolds. Uh, but before we go on, I want to consider one last promise that God made in Genesis chapter 22. 
One last promise he made to Abraham here. He says this, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And notice this, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Part of answering that question is found here when we see that God's blessing to Abraham will be extended not just to Abraham, but through his seed, it will be extended to all the nations. That righteousness will be given to all who believe. So, we're moving, we're getting closer to Jesus. It's Easter, we are going to address the resurrection. Well, we've got one more Old Testament spot to go to before we get there. So hang on, buckle up, get your fingers ready, because we're going to do some more flipping. All right, almost 500 years passes after that promise to Abraham. And God's promise is coming true. His descendants have been incredibly fruitful, and they number over a million people at this point. The problem is that they're currently slaves and under the oppression of the Egyptians. But what do we see? How does God relate to sinners? Again, God takes the initiative. Again, God makes promises. And again, God saves his people despite their unworthiness to be rescued. And so he brings them out of Egypt in the Exodus. So consider this from Exodus 6. And, and, and look, remembering how God dealt with Abraham, look at how he deals with Abraham's descendants. Amen. Uh, God spoke to Moses and he said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Look at this promise. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession, for I am the Lord. And so God rescued Israel. He brought them into the land of promise, a place where they could thrive under God's blessing as God's special people. And like Adam, Israel was to live in a way that reflected God's glory to the nations around them. And as God did at creation, he gave his expectations for how his people were to live. He revealed his design and his purpose for them. He gave them the law. And this included things they should do and things that they shouldn't do. It was a set of rules. Now, if you're like me, if you're human, uh, 
we're not the most fond of rules, are we? Especially when rules restrict us from the things that we want to do. But what we have to remember about God's law is that it's in accordance with it's in accordance with God's design and it was for their good. You know, just a few years ago, okay, maybe it was more than that. My wife and I were uh, we were hiking along the south rim of the Grand Canyon and it was beautiful. I mean, we just taken three steps and standing and marveling at God's creation. Uh, but as we were hiking westward, eventually we came to a fence that blocked the path where I wanted to go. And on the fence, there was a sign. And on the sign, it read, radioactive, <laughs> do not enter. The sign was restricting my freedom. It was preventing me from going where I wanted to go. I wanted to keep going along the rim. Why? Well, as it turns out, as I looked it up later, in the 1950s and 60s, the U.S. government was actually mining uranium right there in the Grand Canyon, and the whole place was covered in uranium dust. So what did we do? I said, you can't tell me how to live my life. That sign may be your truth, but it isn't my truth. I'm going to follow my heart over the fence and into the yellow cloud of dust. No, of course I didn't say that. The sign was there restricting my freedom for my good. It gave me a warning so that I wouldn't hurt myself or others. Well, folks, that's God's law. He came to Israel and he said, do this and live. Do this and thrive. This is my purpose and design for you. But reject it at your own peril. Jesus would later summarize the entire law with just two commandments. It's great. There's like 600 in the law. Jesus summarizes it for us. He says this. The law can be summed up in this. Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. That was Israel's mission under the law. Recognizing the grace of God, they were to live in a way that honored God. But the law was not intended to be a way for Israel to save herself. Remember, God had already rescued them by his grace. God had already begun the relationship with grace. He had already brought them out of slavery. In fact, the purpose of the law was the opposite of that. It was there to show them and us our need for grace. It's kind of like taking the final exam in your calculus course or whatever course that you struggled with. You know, you take the exam, you, you don't feel perfect. You feel like there's probably some stuff you missed, but overall you feel pretty good about it. That is, until you get your grade. And then you realize that what you felt about the exam doesn't really matter. Because your grade is based on objective criteria. And when you see that grade, and you see the objective standard of right and wrong, you realize that you're going to need a miracle to pass the class. <laughs> but brothers and sisters, that's also the law. <laughs> you see, all of us look great 
apart from an objective standard of righteousness, apart from an objective criteria of right or wrong. And the law is there to remind us, to show us that we don't have a hope of living in such a way that God would accept us, that God would overlook our sins. Uh, the Israelites could never dream of being good enough for God to accept them. The law reveals to us that we're more sinful than we ever thought possible. And it shows us that we need to attain the righteousness that comes by faith. The gift of God which is freely given to all who seek it. You see, when we fail to keep the law, we recognize that we need forgiveness. That we need God's righteousness. But what the law also did is it began to show us that there was a very steep cost for God to forgive us and to justify us. If you've ever read through Leviticus, this is why it's important. We're right there in the Bible reading plan. It can get rough, I admit it, but this is why you read Leviticus. The whole point was that our sin separates us from God. Uh, the law set in place a system of sacrifices and priests and a temple. And the forgiveness of sin through the law comes through the shedding of blood, through sacrifices. But because of God's grace, it doesn't have to be our blood, though we are the sinners. Every year, the high priest would make a sacrifice to atone or cover the sins of the Israelites. And their sins would be placed onto an animal substitute. And that animal would pay the penalty for their sins and die in their place. It was a figurative representation, and it was an expression of their faith in a God who forgives. But the author of Hebrews tells us that these sacrifices in the Old Testament never actually accomplished forgiveness. They didn't actually satisfy God's justice. These sacrifices were simply pictures beforehand and expressions of faith pointing us forward in time and helping us to understand the significance of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because there's only one sacrifice for sin that actually can bring forgiveness. Those who lived under the law were justified in the same way that Abraham was. And those of us who live in this day are justified in the same way. By faith alone. Not by law-keeping, not by their deeds, not through anything, except faith in God. And through faith in God, we can have peace with God. Well, like those who came before, Israel eventually decided they didn't want to live by faith. They didn't want to live according to God's design. And so they eventually lost peace with God and peace with one another. And they were removed from the promised land altogether. Because when we reject God's design, we reject God, and bad things happen. Well, we could continue. I mean, we're only in Deuteronomy here. Uh, there's a lot more Old Testament we could go through. We could consider some more strands and motifs and types and understand more fully the significance of Christ. But I know that you've got a ham in the oven, and you don't want it to dry out. So we're going we're gonna to jump to Jesus. Actually, I've never cooked a ham I don't know if that's something you do, but regardless, <clears throat> let's consider Jesus. In the Old Testament, we saw shadows. In the New Testament, 
we see the substance casting those shadows. In creation, we saw that Adam's sin brought death, loss of peace, and condemnation. The New Testament in Romans 5 actually presents Christ as the last Adam or the second Adam. Uh, consider this from Romans 5. It says this, Therefore, as one trespass, Adam's, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, Jesus's, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, praise God, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. You see guys, this is good news. If Adam's sin brought destruction, Jesus' life brings grace. Adam was the head of the old creation in whom all sinned. Jesus inaugurated the new creation. And in Christ, when we believe in him, we're made new and we're made righteous. And verse 21 shows us that this righteousness, which leads to eternal life, can only be found through Jesus Christ, the last Adam. But how does Jesus accomplish this? Well, for that, we'll have to move from creation and Adam to the other guy that starts with A, Abraham. You remember that Abraham was a sinner, and yet he was considered righteous by God. Why? Because he believed in God, and so God justified Abraham. But do you remember that promise that I brought up at the end when we were talking about Abraham? Uh, that in your offspring, or that in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This means that God would use a descendant of Abraham to bring justification to all the nations. Look at what Galatians says about this in Galatians 3.16. Again, referencing that promise that we looked at. Now, the promise, promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And it doesn't say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. We could go there. Matthew chapter 1 actually traces the lineage from Abraham all the way to Christ. I'll let you read that in your own time. There's a lot of begat words there. But here Paul is showing us that it is through Christ ultimately that this blessing of justification comes. This seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. But consider again Galatians chapter 3. In this promise we've looked at now three times. It says this, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, that's us, by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. You see, God's plan from the beginning was to bless all nations on earth through Jesus Christ, the descendant of Abraham. That all who look to him in faith would be justified as Abraham was. So we recognize that justification comes to us the same way it came to him. As we turn to 
Moses will finally consider how it is that God can forgive and justify sinners and still be a just God. Consider Deuteronomy 18 with me. Uh, Moses himself predicted that God would send another prophet greater than himself. He says this, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. As we find out with the hindsight of the New Testament, this prophet can speak for God because he is God. And Jesus, when he was walking this earth, taught the truth. He revealed the meaning of the law. He helped us to understand God's design. And more importantly than that, he helped us understand his own identity as the Son of God. But he went beyond simply teaching God's word. He embodied it and he lived it. We said that you and I are completely incapable of keeping the law. Jesus actually did perfectly keep the law. He fulfilled the law. He loved God perfectly and he perfectly loved his neighbor, even dying for his neighbor. And so if we were to consider that final exam of the law, Jesus aced it with flying colors. And so Jesus fulfilled the law, which we saw in Moses. But in going to the cross, he also fulfilled the sacrificial system. Because it was on the cross that Jesus bore the punishment for sinners. The penalty for our rejection of God's good design. Our flouting of God's holy law. Isaiah said it beforehand, 700 years before Christ, he said this, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Do you realize that it was the will of God the Father to punish God the Son for sins that he did not commit? What the old sacrificial system could only point to, Jesus actually accomplished. He died as a substitute, as a sacrifice for all who would believe in him. It's because God poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ that he can forgive you. Because the penalty for your sin has been paid by God himself. Brothers and sisters, this is the love of God. Substitution. Coming to creatures who rejected him and dying in their place. Paying off the debt of sin through the precious, holy, and righteous blood of Jesus Christ. And this was no accident. But it was the plan of God worked out in history. And this is why Paul can say in Romans 4.25, as we began, that he was delivered over to death for our sins. This is why God can forgive us. But the good news of Easter, of course, is that Jesus didn't stay dead. But that he was raised to life for our justification. His resurrection is a sign that Christ has been vindicated. His resurrection shows that our justification has been secured. His sacrifice has been accepted. And he now intercedes for us at the right hand of God. This is the beauty of the gospel. We could never make ourselves acceptable to God. But this is what God did. He took our sins and he placed them on Christ. And he took Jesus' perfect righteousness, his acing of this exam of the law. And he applies it to us through faith. God is both just and merciful in doing this. Jesus takes our sin, 
we take his righteousness. This is the love of God to die in your place and to rise for your justification. And if you are righteous in Christ, then Romans 5, 1 is true of you. You have peace with God. And you will be able to enjoy knowing and worshiping him for all of eternity. Do you realize what a remarkable statement that is? That through the free grace of God, you get to know and enjoy the creator of the universe. That is a bold claim. And that is God's design for you. And that is God's heart for you. God wants you to know him. He wants you to love him. And he wants you to find your greatest satisfaction in him. And so I'll close this morning. Everybody said amen. Not really. You're supposed to say more. I'll close in about 10 minutes. I'll close this morning by turning to any who are here who have yet to place their faith in Christ, who have yet to be justified on account of his defeating death. The gospel's been laid out. Christ can take your sin and you can have his righteousness. You're not good enough to earn it. None of us are. But that's okay because he gives it to us freely. But I want to be clear that the benefits of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are only given to those who eagerly accept them through faith. Jesus' first words of ministry in the Gospel of Mark were this, repent and believe the Gospel, the kingdom of God is at hand. And so this morning I want to ask you this, will you accept in the words of Isaiah the chastisement upon Christ which can bring you peace? Or would you prefer to bear it yourself? Will you suffer under God's just wrath against sinners or will you accept the free gift of righteousness? Will you receive the curse of the law or will you happily enjoy the blessing of Abraham? I tell you this morning that Christ has made a way for you to have peace with God. Don't delay. Don't hold to your own petty attempts of righteousness or your false morality. But turn to the one who loved you enough to die for you and to rise again for your justification. Let's pray.